Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home, baby. (laughs) Happy half birthday to Military Murder. Can you believe that the show has been around for six months already? I can't believe it. Time is just flying. It's crazy. But you know, When you do what you love, and for me, that's telling cautionary tales because, you know, we should always be a little skeptical of everyone, right? (laughs) Well, when you do what you love, time just flies by. On the heels of Mother's Day and in recognition of May as Mental Health Awareness Month, I'm bringing you one of the most horrific cases I may have covered to date. I know you're probably thinking, what? You've covered some pretty crazy cases. Yes, yes, I have. But this one is up there with the Hennis triple murder, which is episode three, if you haven't listened to that, and a father's revenge killing, which is episode nine. You thought you heard it all until now. A few weeks ago, I brought you the heart-wrenching case of a single military mom whose baby was murdered while she was deployed. But imagine being married, deploying, and leaving behind your two teenage kids with your wife, their mother, only to be called back home to the most horrific scene ever. Join me today as I discuss the killer mom, Army veteran, and the Colonel's wife, Julie Scheneker. Listener discretion is advised. Now, let's dig in. My primary sources for today's case include various YouTube videos, including Croker Queen's library consisting of the entire televised trial against Julie Scheneker, ABC Action News reports a post-trial ABC Action News interview with Julie conducted by reporter Serena Fazan, People in Time magazine articles, Daily Mail, New York Daily News, and Tampa Bay Times. Colonel Parker Scheneker and his wife of 20 years, Julie Scheneker, they were the typical military family. Parker commissioned in the Army in 1984, and by the late 80s, he found himself stationed in Germany, where he met another active duty soldier, Julie. Julie Powers. She was a Russian linguist and she was tall and beautiful and she had been in the military since 1983. As a Russian linguist, Julie was responsible for debriefing deflectors from the Soviet Union who were seeking asylum. Julie and Parker made the perfect couple. By the time the couple wed in 1991, it was evident that Parker was going the distance in the military. He was making it a career. Julie, on the other hand, she didn't know if she'd be able to keep up with Parker's pace. She did want six kids after all. And how was she going to do that while being active duty with an active duty spouse? The task seemed impossible. So after serving a little less than 10 years in the military, Julie decided to separate from the military. And the timing was perfect as the Schenickers had decided it was time to start a family. And like I said, Julie wanted six kids. But Parker wasn't so sure that six kids was the best for a military family that moved often. The Schenickers welcomed daughter Calix on September 13, 1994. She was born while they were still stationed in Germany. 
Three years later, they welcomed a son, Bo, on September 29, 1997. This time, they were stationed in Hawaii. At some point after Bo was born, Parker knew that would be the last child for them, and according to the opening statements at trial, he got a vasectomy. On the outside looking in, anyone would have been envious of the Schenickers. Parker was racing up the military ranks, and Julie was a stay-at-home mom raising two beautiful kiddos. But behind the facade was a woman who experienced very high highs and very low lows. According to the prosecutor's opening statement, when Calix was in kindergarten, which was approximately in 2001, Julie was hospitalized for nine months because she couldn't get out of bed and she couldn't care for her kids. Throughout the marriage, they lived all over the world. And according to Parker, they lived in Munich, Germany for a few years, and then they moved to Arizona, then back to Germany for three more years, Kansas, Hawaii for another three years, Virginia for another three years, then back to Germany for three years, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and ultimately in 2007, they landed in Tampa, Florida. Parker was stationed as a commander at MacDill Air Force Base in Florida. Now, all my civilian listeners are thinking, what? They lived in how many places and what amount of time? And all my military listeners are thinking, yep, that sounds about right. By the time that they were stationed at MacDill, they were living in a beautiful upper middle class neighborhood in New Tampa. And Parker, in an effort to make up for living in cold weather the last few years, he purchased his wife a nice convertible Audi. And again, from the outside looking in, life seemed great at the Schenecker home. But beneath it all, Julie's mental health was quickly deteriorating. For several years, Julie described having bouts of mania, where she was always on a high, 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 high. And in her opinion, this is exactly the type of person fit for military life. And even the role of military spouse, everyone expects you to be on point 100% of the time. Pretty clothes, fit body, nice makeup. But Julie also experienced bouts of really low lows, like rock bottom. And because they moved so frequently, no one on the outside noticed anything. And the Schenickers dealt with this the best that they could by ignoring it and acting like Julie didn't exist. Julie recalls times when she would lock herself in her room and she would go weeks without showering. She had little ability to do basic daily activities and her husband and her kids would just ignore her and let her be. And in my non-expert opinion, this was probably a blessing and a curse, right? If you've ever grown up with a very ill person or someone with mental health issues, most of the times those around that particular person have to just keep going on. They keep living their life. They learn to just ignore the person who's extremely ill or the person who is mentally ill. And it's sad. Well. Years later, it would appear that the family's lack of empathy, or at least the lack of empathy that Julie perceived them to have, would deeply affect her, and she was keeping count. By the fall of 2010, Julie was heavily medicated for her mental health issues, and she was mixing her medication with alcohol, which is something she hadn't done in the past. Her family was falling apart, and Calix, her daughter, who was now 16 years old, and Julie, they had a full-blown teenage daughter feud at the Schenecker house. And I was a teenage girl <laughs> at one point. And anyone out there who has teenage daughters or teenage kids in general, you know that there's this, this time. I mean, I have two young daughters and everyone keeps telling me like, wait till they become teenagers. 
they basically have like split personalities. And so that's what Julie was experiencing at her house. Julie was fed up with Calix being disrespectful, including Calix calling her mother names. And Calix was fed up with her mother because her mother was never around. She was always sick. She locked herself away and she just wasn't a mother. So they both turned to the man of the house, Parker. However, Parker was constantly gone because he was a full bird colonel in the army by this point. He was always on temporary assignment for anywhere from three to 14 days at a time. And so although he hardly witnessed his wife and daughter fight, he sure did hear about it after the fact. Julie once confided in Parker about the issues that they were having at the house. And Parker straight looked at Julie and said something to the effect of, it's time you start acting like an adult, Julie, instead of stooping to a 16-year-old's level. And this, this didn't go down well for Julie. But Parker knew he had to do something, right? He couldn't just confront his wife and he couldn't just be yelling all the time. So the family decided that Calix should have a separate avenue to speak to someone outside the house about these issues with her mother, right? You can't just always vent to your mom, to your, to your mom, not to your mom, but you can't always vent to your dad or to your brother. You need to have an outside avenue of a professional. And that's what happened. Calix began to see a counselor sometime in October. During this time in the October, November, December 2010 timeframe, Julie's mental health was in the gutter. She was drinking like a fish and she either sought help or was forced to seek professional help. And while Julie was unavailable mentally and physically for her family, her mother-in-law stepped in to help out around the house. Then in December, the family decided that they all needed to see a family counselor to work their issues out collectively. In the meantime, Calix asked her father, she was just desperate to get out of this situation. She said, dad, what about boarding school? Can I start looking into that? And Parker thought, you know, that might be a great way to ease the tension at the house. And if, you know, she could go to a good college prep boarding school, that was a plus. Calix was excited by the prospect of this and she lined up a few school visits for after the holidays. Well, the holidays came and went. And soon after, on January 13th, 2011, the family put on a brave face and they went to a nice restaurant called Benedetto's to celebrate Julie's 50th birthday. And according to Parker's court testimony, Julie seemed fine. A few days later, Parker reminded Julie that he was going to be leaving for 10 days to Afghanistan for his job. And he asked her if she was okay. He just, she was having issues in the fall. He wanted to know if she was okay and if she needed help. And remember, Back in October, November, December timeframe, Parker brought his mother in, Nancy Scheneker. He brought her in from Louisiana to come help around the house with the kids. And because Julie wasn't doing too well, he asked her again, hey, do you need help? Julie looked Parker straight in the eye and said, quote, I got this, end quote. Parker, not wanting to push the issue and recognizing that his kids were old enough to basically take care of themselves, they were 16 and 13, he thought, okay, It's only 10 days. Everyone's going to be fine. However, according to court records, Parker sent out an email to close friends and family, basically saying, please keep an eye out for my family. And he left it at that. So Julie started hearing rumblings about this email, but no one would tell her or show her the email and they didn't tell her what it was about. She immediately began to think, I know exactly what that email says. My husband is planning to file for divorce. According to the Scheneker family calendar, and just real quick, you know those large desk calendars that a lot of people have in their office? Well, the Schenekers, they had a family calendar identical to this and they kept it in the kitchen. 
Well, they kept it in the kitchen and they wrote everything down to keep track of everyone's activities. Parker's TDYs, which are temporary assignments, the kids' different sporting events, carpool dates, things of that nature. Well, according to the calendar, the week of January 17th, 2011, there was no school. Parker was scheduled to leave for Afghanistan on January 19th and was scheduled to return on February 1st. Well, during Parker's absence, all hell broke loose. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. On Wednesday, January 19th, Parker left to Afghanistan and Julie, the ticking time bomb, was left to her own devices. That Saturday, January 22nd, Julie would have it her way. She was determined to shut her mouthy kids up by killing them. Yes, you heard that correctly. She wrote in her journal that it would be a Saturday massacre. So that day, she drove her kids to their respective school activities. Calix was a cross-country runner and Bo was a soccer player. And she took them around to all their activities. And then she waited like a good mother does. And afterwards, she dropped them back off at home. And then she left to run an errand. Julie drove from New Tampa, Florida to Oldsmar to the lock and load gun shop. Now, when I was researching this case, I was wondering why are they talking about the distance? Because the prosecutors and everyone kept talking about how far the gun shop was from her house. And when I map quested the distance from New Tampa to Oldsmar, it was about a 22 mile trip, approximately 35 minutes. But when I map quested it on my phone or Apple Maps or whatever it is, it was at like 11 p.m. at night when I was working on this podcast. And 35 minutes at 11 o'clock at night, you know, there's no traffic. There isn't much traffic. But if anyone's ever been to Florida, you know that traffic in Florida is pretty stiff, especially on during the week and, and during the afternoons on weekends. So I'm assuming that it wasn't a short trip, which is why everyone kept making a big deal about it. 
I bet you it was anywhere from 45 to 60 minutes away each way. Well, when Julie, the 5'9", fittish-looking blonde, walked into the lock and load, the store workers wondered what brought her in. I'm sure that gun shop clerks are always asking people like, oh, what are you looking to purchase this gun for, right? That's just kind of like small chat, I guess, small, small chat. So Julie discussed that she needed a gun for protection because there had been a string of home invasions in her neighborhood and she wasn't taking any chances. Meanwhile, she's smiling, laughing, feeling and holding the guns, and she picked her favorite gun. It was a 38 revolver. And I can imagine at this point all types of things running through her mind. When she paid for the gun, would she actually go through with her plan for a Saturday massacre? So Julie started filling out the gun forms and background check paperwork, and she handed them over, paid with her solo credit card, a card that she kept in her name only, which her husband didn't have access to. And the store clerk said, great, great. okay, cool. Thank you for filling everything out. In about three days, we will give you a call to make sure that the background check came back clean and you'll be ready to take your gun home. And what? Julie's bubble burst. What in the actual hell? She used to be a Russian linguist, gosh darn it. Why can't she take the gun right now? She's married to an army intelligence officer who's in Afghanistan as we speak fighting for this country, the audacity of Florida legislature to intrude on her Second Amendment right to bear arms immediately. Uh, So I imagine that Julie dragged her feet out of the store and cursed her way the entire drive home. She needed to get her anger out. So she went home and she journaled. Darn, her Saturday massacre plans were screwed. But oh, well, I guess it'll have to wait, she thought. Meanwhile, her kids know she's a hot mess in the head and Bo sent an email to one of his friends saying his mom was mentally unstable. On Tuesday, January 25th, Calix was discussing a mandatory meeting that her mom had to attend. And Calix looked at her disheveled mom and in a typical teenager attitude, she yelled at her mom to get her act together, dress up and put some makeup on mom. What's wrong with you? She also called her mother pathetic and an evil soul. And all of this was just fueling Julie internally. If Calix thought Julie was evil, she just needed to wait because evil was coming. That night, Julie would write in her journal, quote, the evil starts Thursday, end quote. On Thursday, January 27th, Julie drove back to the lock and load to pick up her revolver. She remembered to also grab some hollow point bullets in case the local scoundrels came trying to invade her house. Except she knew full well the gun was not for protection. It was for murder. Julie left the gun store, loaded the gun and put the gun in her purse. And then she drove home in her ever-typical suburban white Honda Odyssey minivan. And listen, no judgment to the minivan. I myself am a minivan driver, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's the best thing since sliced bread and totally jives with my somewhat chaotic mom life. But anyway, I digress. Julie drove home, and she stopped at the house. Bo jumped in the car because he had soccer practice, and Julie started driving. Bo had his seatbelt on at this point and he was fiddling with something on the floor. He's putting on his soccer cleats or something, I don't know, kind of like below the dashboard. When Julie, who was still driving, took out the gun and pointed it at her 13-year-old son, Bo. 
Bo looked at her. He freaked the heck out. He started yelling, put that gun down, put that gun down or I'll punch you. And Julie pulled the trigger, but the shot hit the windshield. And then she took aim at her son's head and pulled the trigger again, hitting him on the left side of his head. Julie then turned around. Calix was next. When Julie arrived home, she changed her routine up a bit. Instead of parking the minivan outside the garage, which is what she typically does, she pulled the van into the garage, closed the door behind her. You know, she didn't want to take any chances if anyone saw Bo or if they saw the hole on the windshield. Well, she's sitting in the garage watching the blood gushing from her son's head. She took aim again and shot him right in the mouth. Julie later confessed, that she did this because he was becoming mouthy, just like his sister. Julie quickly realized, crap, a neighbor may have actually heard that gunshot. I need to finish up or I won't get to my main target, the catalyst of all my pain, that bratty little teenager, Calix. So Julie walked upstairs into Calix's room, where Calix was looking away from the door, doing her homework on her computer. Julie walked up behind Calix and looked over her shoulder at the computer. And Calix, she probably was rolling her eyes and she wondered out loud what Julie was doing. Like, mom, get off my back. Julie assured her she was just checking to see what she was doing. Julie then took aim and said, I love you. While she simultaneously executed Calix right there in front of her computer. Calix slumped over while Julie took aim one last time and put a bullet right in her face. Julie's master plan was almost complete, but she wanted Calix to be comfortable. So she picked her up from the ground, dragged her to the bed, and put the blanket over her. Calix was drenched in blood, but Julie didn't see any of it. As Julie stared at her daughter, she noticed only half of Calix's mouth was smiling. So Julie did this. I mean, she's already this is already terrible, but she did this whole joker thing where she tried to hold up Calix's mouth, the one part that wasn't smiling with her finger. But, you know, Calix was dead. There would be no more smiles. Julie, in a jailhouse interview years after the trial that I'll describe later, she describes that as she sat there, she saw this gray thing come right out of Calix's body and disappear into the ceiling. And Julie quickly sat Calix up, hugged her, wondered why Calix wasn't hugging her back. And then she laid her back down. Just then, Julie remembered that Bo was in the van and he also needed a blanket because it was January. And even though it's Florida, it gets a little nippy. She went down to the garage and initially she thought about moving Bo. She actually thought about dragging his body and putting him in her bed because when Parker is away, it seemed that Bo would sleep in the bed with her. But he was a little bit too heavy. And so she just put a blanket over him. Then Julie went about doing a series of things that would only seal her fate even more. And if you hate Julie right now, just wait. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. 
June's journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. Julie started to decorate the house with post-it notes. Well, not really decorate, but she began to leave notes for whoever, whomever, whatever, whoever found the kids first. Her intent all along was to kill herself. But after seeing how much destruction was caused by bullets, well, she opted to use pills to save herself the pain. According to Parker, Julie was a carpool mom. So when she and her kids didn't show up the next day or whenever the following day or the following week, folks would come a knocking. So to take care of those folks, Julie left two post-it notes on her front door that said, quote, we went to New York City, be back on Tuesday, Julie, end quote. On the family calendar, on the square reserved for the date that Parker was to return home from Afghanistan, she wrote, quote, sorry about your parking space, had to leave it for Bo, my darling, precious child, end quote. Also, directly on the family calendar, she wrote, quote, Bo is in the van on the way to practice. Calix is in the bed, tried to make her comfortable, end quote. Julie then sent an email to her husband that said, come home soon. Your family is waiting for you. She sent another incoherent email to her mother that ended with, quote, it will all be over soon, end quote. Then she put on her robe, sat outside in her enclosed back patio and took a lethal dose of lithium and cumidin, a blood thinning drug that she had a prescription for. Her intent all along was to die from an overdose. The next morning, Julie was in and out of it when two new Tampa police officers arrived at 16305 Royal Park Court, Tampa Palms, Florida. They were at Julie's house to conduct a welfare check because after Julie sent that babbling email to her mother, her mother sent the cops out. The cops saw the post-it notes on the front door, but they still knocked, but no one answered. But through the front window, they could actually see straight through to the back of the house. And they noticed the back sliding door was open. So they quickly head out back. And that is when they found Julie. Julie incoherently said, quote, hi, I'm bipolar, end quote. And then she blurted out, my husband is going to be so distraught. The cops immediately noticed blood on Julie's light colored robe. Initially, when I read the news reports, I thought the robe was like drenched or covered in blood. But from looking at the pictures during the trial, which is available on YouTube, as I mentioned earlier, I noticed that the blood stains were not that large. It wasn't like she was drenched in blood. The officers start asking her questions about the source of the blood. 
they're trying to figure out if she's bleeding. Well, Julie told them to go find her kids. And soon the police discover they were the unlucky SOBs to be called to do a welfare check at a homicide scene. The scene, as described earlier, was so horrific that they actually had to call out counselors for the first responders who endured the initial crime scene. And this, guys, this is so, so sad. And I'm sorry, this is a terrible, terrible story. Julie was so out of it that she asked the cops to give her the gun so she could finish the job that she had hoped to accomplish earlier, which was to kill herself. And I'm sure that it took a massive amount of restraint on the part of the officers to not finish the job themselves. Evidence discovered in the home revealed that Julie left many notes around the house. She wrote a note for Parker that read, quote, Parker, I'm sorry, so sorry. I sensed divorce was inevitable, but I can't live alone. Calix drove me to drink. I've offed Bo first. He saw the gun and told me to put it away. He had a healthy fright, end quote. She also wrote about how crappy Calix was. She said Bo was becoming sassy just like his sister, so now he had to go along with us. One note said, told everyone we went to New York City. Another note read, I could have done this any time. I could have done it when you were here. Luckily, you weren't. I probably would have taken you out too. That would have been a crying shame. Inside, the cops and investigators found the grisly scene of two teenagers killed at the hands of their own mother. Yeah, the kids thought their mom was nuts, but they trusted her with their lives. Yet she snuffed them out. Investigators discover overwhelming evidence that Julie cold-heartedly planned out the murder of her two kids. And through the investigation, they found all the notes that she wrote and left after the murders, the journal that she kept leading up to the murders, the pills. They found the ammo. They found the lock and load gun receipt. They corroborated everything with gun store surveillance video. And then to top it off, she confessed. She was recorded saying, quote, I shot her in the back of the head because she was running her mouth, end quote. Then she says she shot her in the mouth because her, ma- her, her mouth angered her so much. She was too sassy. Now, you can actually listen to some of the audio parts of her interrogation on the trial that's available on YouTube. And she sounds like a very drunk person. And it's so hard to listen to her tell this story. I mean, just imagine the drunkest person you've ever seen in your life trying to make a sentence. And that's what Julie sounds like. At some point, Julie said she killed her kids to save them. She wanted to save them from having a mental illness just like her. She also wrote, quote, if you wonder why I decided to take out the kids, it's to protect them from embarrassing them for the rest of their lives. End quote. She left another note that read, quote, DNR, donate my body to science, end quote. And DNR in this instance stands for do not resuscitate. Julie confided in the investigators that she was shocked that no one heard the gunshots in her neighborhood. She for sure thought that the cops would be there earlier. Now, Julie thought out loud, this is the worst thing I have ever done. You think, Julie? You think? And at one point, even after admitting that she shot her kids, she turned to the investigator and asked, quote, are my kids coming later? End quote. At 10 p.m. on January 28th, 2011, Colonel Parker Schenecker was in his barracks in Afghanistan. And I'm sure it's called something else, 
but that's what I'm going to call it. And don't correct me. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, Colonel Scheneker got a knock on his door. It was a colonel and a chaplain in their deployed uniform and they needed to talk. At first, Colonel Scheneker thought, "Okay, cool. They're here to chat with me about tomorrow's meeting. But when Parker looked at their face, he realized, oh, no, something happened to my mother. Colonel Scheneker could have never imagined the horror. His two kids had been murdered at the hands of their mother, his wife of 20 years. He was rightfully upset. Back home, Julie was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, and prosecutors, they were seeking the death penalty in this case. After the shooting rocked the quiet suburban neighborhood, ABC News reported that Julie Scheneker, the colonel's wife, had actually been investigated for child abuse in the fall of 2010. What? Say what now? Yes. You know that part in every episode of my podcast where I tell you things aren't always what they seem? Well, there's a lot of that in this story. According to ABC News, Police paid a visit to the Scheneker house on November 6, 2010. They were there to investigate an allegation of child abuse against Calix. This all came about when Calix confided in a school counselor that her mother, Julie, had struck her in the face when they were in the car heading home from cross-country practice a few days earlier. When the police interviewed Calix, she said, yes, my mom struck me in the face with an open palm repeatedly for 30 seconds. Now, the incident left a red mark immediately afterwards, but by the time of the report and the time that the investigators were there, there were no physical marks. So the investigators interviewed Julie and Julie didn't deny the incident. She said, yep, yeah, I did it. Calix had run into the grocery store one day and when she came out, I asked her what she got and she told me to mind my business. She also called me disgusting and told me I wasn't her mom. Now, Julie confessed, yeah, I backhanded her three times. But she wasn't bruised or bleeding during the incident. So like, what's the big deal? But Calix had something else to say. A month before this incident, Julie did hit Calix so hard on the mouth that Calix bled from her mouth. And when the police asked Julie, hey, is this true? Julie said, yep. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did that too. Although I don't remember any bleeding. Well, The police closed the case and nothing ever came of the child abuse incident. But just three months later, Julie Scheneker would murder her kids. So, True Crime Army, this is where I leave you until my next episode. I know this is a two-part episode. Oh my goodness. I know everyone's pissed. Hey, join me next time where I will jump right into Julie Scheneker's trial, which took years to come to fruition, first of all. And I'll also discuss Julie's Jayhaas interview a year after the trial. And I'm also going to discuss a very powerful speech given by retired Colonel Parker Scheneker himself. Trust me, you won't want to miss part two. So make sure that you subscribe and you come back next week. All right, True Crime Army, you know where to find me. I'm on social media, always interacting with my listeners. You can find me on social, on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast, on Facebook at Military True Crime, and on Twitter at Military Murder. All right, this week, the show has four producers. What? And I want to give a shout out to them for supporting the show. First of all, the Military Murder Morale Fund. 
with their generous donation. This week's show producers are Katie K and Jacqueline B. Both of these ladies are two-time donors to the Military Murder Morale Fund. Woohoo! Ladies, I love you. But we also have two first-time donors as well. We have Amber H. Thank you so much. And Randy K. So you guys don't know how awesome it is or how awesome the feeling is when you guys donate to the podcast. You know that I do this for free. I basically am putting this podcast out there. I haven't, uh, you know, created a Patreon or anything like that because I don't have the time to create extra content for you guys. But for those of you supporting the show, regardless, I truly, truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. You, you guys rock so much. And just my listeners, people who are just listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for believing in the show and wanting to see it continue. If you listen to the show every week and you want to see the show continue to grow and flourish as well, um, you may consider donating via PayPal using my email address, militarymurderpodcast at gmail.com, or just feel free to go to my website and donate there. Okay, I want to acknowledge a few folks who have left reviews since last time. Reviews are so important. Okay, on Facebook, we have Kimberly DJ. She's a veteran married to a military retiree. We have Don M, Holly S, and Rick W. On Apple Podcast Reviews, we have Trace2827 and Miranda E. On CastBox, I can't forget to shout out truck drivers. Thank you to my truck drivers who listen. And I want to say thank you to B. Domingo for the reminder. And if you know a truck driver or a delivery person who spends all day in their car, don't forget to tell them about Military Murder Podcast. I know they're always looking for recommendations. All right. Shout out to Candy R, Bethany S, Julianne A, Ray S, Emily W, Jody T, and Wendy. Also, I don't normally acknowledge bad reviews, but I do want to comment on one review that I received, and I'm not going to give their name because I'm not going to give them that honor. But this person said that they realized that I don't reach out to the people I tell my stories about. And that is 100% true. From the start of my podcasting journey, I've not hidden the fact that I am not an investigative reporter and I don't go out seeking comments. I dig into the publicly available information. I piece the stories together to bring you a complete picture from start to finish of the coverage of the media coverage. Because when you read a report, so someone gets arrested today and a few months there's a hearing and then years later is the trial. So you're kind of all over the place. You don't remember what any of the facts are. So I take all that coverage from the beginning to the end. And I try and tell the story in chronological order. So anyway, I am a storyteller. I started this podcast as a cautionary tale because a lot of people think the military is all rainbows and unicorns and we all need to be smart. The world in general is not all rainbows and unicorns. So the military isn't any different. The whole point is we have to be smart out there. Okay. All right. I'm off my soapbox. Okay. This is a reminder that if you like the show and you've listened more than once or twice or five times because you like the show, leave a review. Even just a five-star review without uh, without writing anything is fine. It means a lot and it really does help other people find the show. And this is true. Listen, it's like when you're on Amazon and you read the reviews before buying anything. Well, podcasting is the same exact way. There are over 500, probably over a thousand true crime podcasts. When someone is looking for a new podcast to listen to, They pull up the reviews. Sometimes they just check to see how many reviews a podcast has before they even push play. So help a sister out, okay? Help other people find 
this show. Especially if you like it, you should be recommending it to your friends. All right. If you don't like the show, don't listen. Just walk away. It's okay. We all have a type. And if I'm not yours, as my little daughter says, Bye, Felicia. All right. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions, produced by Katie K, Jacqueline B, Randy K, and Amber H. And the music was created by TyOps. Please check the show notes for a direct link to my resources page on my website, militarymurderpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you the rest of this military murder story next week. Shh, let's work another podcast.